Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name may or may not be Todd Ixenball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. But, Todd, I have some sad news. What? This is the last week that we are doing two episodes a week. Because this is the last week of June. That is sad. But also cool because I don't have to edit two podcasts a week. But still sad because I've enjoyed all the episodes that we release. I don't know what to say about that. I have mixed emotion. But you won't you won't remain sad for long because we have a great guest on the show today. Today we are talking with Kate O'Laughlin about her book, The Science of Talent. Now, Kate is an executive coach and HR consultant. She specializes in talent management and is passionate about helping people get the most out of their organizations and what and helping leaders understand what they need to do to make that happen. And, and she has a British accent. Yes, I forgot to mention that. The most important of her accomplishments. The most important thing. She has it is just a fascinating uh, book and fascinating yeah. research and all just all about as the book says, the science behind talent and that there really is a strategy. There really is a science to talent management, to talent recruitment, to, to retainment and all of that stuff. When I originally read the book, it was like, it was kind of like reading like, like a, a research paper, which is so dense, so full of, of just great information. And it was hard to, at times it was hard to kind of process exactly what I was reading and how, how, what to do with it and then like when we talked with her in this episode i was like holy cow whoa like i think both of us kind of looked at each other we were like this woman is a genius and like wow and so this episode was 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 so fascinating to be able to record because you know she's just on some next level stuff understanding how to how to recruit what you're looking for when you're recruiting and on the flip side of that right to do stuff in house, like how how to do in stuff in house, how to set stuff up and how to develop people, um, phenomenal. Okay. Such great research, um, really has a great understanding of of what's what's going on. This whole thing, phenomenal. Can't wait for you guys to listen to it. Yes, and we would love your feedback on this episode and just on the podcast in general. Let us know how we're doing. And the best way for you to do that is by leaving a rating and writing a review of the podcast on iTunes. It's very simple. It'll take less than two minutes to do that. All you have to do is go to your Apple podcast player and then leave a rating and write a review. It can literally be done in an instant. Well, maybe not an instant. Probably not. But a couple of minutes. Yeah. Now. Before we get to our conversation with Kate, Todd, what is our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week? So, um, a guy named Adam Grant does a podcast. He does a lot more than a podcast. Okay, go Google that. Just Google Adam Grant, learn from him. He also does a podcast. He's a, yeah, he, that's probably a better way of saying that. He he also, he does a podcast. Um, just does some awesome stuff. I believe is it the podcast is through TED, right? Yeah, TED podcast. Yeah. So if you and if you don't know what TED is, go Google TED all caps and you'll see what we're talking about. But anyways, so Adam does this podcast called Work Life, and so basically he does interviews and stuff talking about wait for it work life. He's fascinated with with work with jobs, 
And so he does this. So he has this episode called, I, I, don't, I don't know, Caleb put this in the show notes because Caleb's cool like that, what, what the episode number is. But the episode is called The Problem with All-Stars. Yep, to find it, just go to our show notes. Just Yeah, just go to the show notes to find it. But I wanted to just to mention a little something about why I think this is so valuable. Um, every You all know who the all-star at your job is, like who the person who's kind of the front runner, who, who does, you know, overachieves and does all that stuff. And that's great, and we all like working with that person because it makes our job easier. They're so good at what they do. But there is a dark side. There's some problems there, and... And, and Adam kind of dives into this, and, and it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. If you're a boss right now, um, if you're, if you are that all-star, or if you're somebody who worked with somebody who could be defined by that, this is something you should listen to. Um, great episode, great content. Go to the show notes, find it there. Yeah, good episode. One of one of the really interesting things, a part a part of it, is that he talks with um, Brad Stevens, who, if you're not familiar with who that is, um, he's currently the head coach of the Boston Celtics, which is an NBA basketball team. Yep. And then he also co- coached in college basketball at Butler University. Butler. And one of the really th- interesting things that really stood out to me whenever it came to Butler. And by the way, just so that everybody, or you might even be about to say it, but the really interesting thing about Butler is Butler was winning with like, I mean, it is. Butler is not a mid, they're not a major school. They're not, they're not Ohio big, State. Yep. They're not Alabama. They're not Kentucky. They're not, I guess Alabama isn't a big Duke, basketball school. Duke, basketball. North Carolina. Yeah. But one of the one of the really interesting things that he talks about is how they really didn't have an all star, and so what he did um, at Butler. was at Butler was he made everyone on the team a captain. Yeah. And so if you want to find out why he did that, check out this episode for other tips as well and concerning go that stuff. To that podcast that's phenomenal. Yep. Adam Grant coming with fire. But. Before you listen to that podcast, finish listening to this one because we have a great episode for you today. And so here's our conversation with Kate O'Loughlin. Well, Kate, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. You know, you recently, you know, just released a book called The Science of Talent. And we're just kind of curious, you know, what made you want to write this book? Yeah, I guess uh, I've always felt that I had a book in me. Um, it was quite a revelation for me that not everybody felt like that. So, uh, yeah, just me. But I, I wrote it really for three reasons. Um, the first is that I wrote it to help people like my friend Rachel. So Rachel's worked in HR for many years as a generalist. And um, she recently joined... A, an organization and was given the talent agenda because she'd done well, she'd been promoted. And although she'd used a lot of talent processes before, she didn't know how to design them for the organization she was in. She and I'd worked together years ago. And so she rang me and said, Kate, what do I do? How do I create talent? So I was talking her through it and it suddenly struck me that probably there are lots of people out there who don't know how to design a talent strategy in total from scratch because lots of HR generalists and lots of managers use bits of it or are asked to be involved in bits of it, but they don't necessarily know how that's all connected together. And I think that's particularly true of um, some of the new startups out there who maybe don't have an HR function or have uh, an HR function where somebody's specialising in a different area. 
So I thought, God, that would be quite useful for, for people to actually have and they can use it to set something up from scratch. The way I've written it has been heavily influenced by the second reason that I kind of wrote it, which is I am passionate about helping people to understand why things are done. And a lot of what I do is based on empirical evidence, if it exists out there. And again, in talking to Rachel about what I was doing, um, we came to talk about whether a talent pool should be open or closed. And I was explaining to her some of the psychological principles behind why you would have an open pool where everybody knows who's in the talent pool or why you'd have a closed talent pool where nobody knows who's in the talent pool. And for me, uh, with my background as a business psychologist, it was self-evident the reasons why you would do that. But for her, it was a complete revelation. And, and she sort of went, oh, wow, I didn't know that. So it was really important for me to explain why things were, do, were done, not just how they were done. Um, I think also that when I explain that to people, it helps them to kind of get really involved because a lot of the time specialist talent teams are relying on managers and HR business partners to actually do a lot of the work. They collect the data and they give it to the talent team. And then in some organisations, they never see anything again until a year later they're asked for the same data and it feels a bit like a thankless task they go round and round the same loop but they never see the output because it's confidential and it happens behind closed doors so again for me it was it was really important to explain not just what you do but why you do it and the third reason that I wrote the book was actually something that happened uh, to me as I sat down to begin writing it I was working in three different organizations as an executive coach and on three completely separate uh, occasions with three different people in three different organizations within the space of about two weeks I had people say to me oh, I'm not a very good millennial I was like <laughs> yeah. what do you mean, what mean? you're not a very good millennial and it was really bizarre because what they were basically saying was they weren't living up to the expectations we all have of millennials being really uh, technologically capable, uh, of being flexible, of wanting this, wanting that. And it really struck me that we are making a huge amount of noise in the press about generational differences between Gen X, Gen Z, Gen Y, millennials. And actually, a lot of the time, it's not that. It's something completely different. Some people are just very technologically focused. And it doesn't matter what age they are or what generation they come from. That's their truth. And other people aren't. But it got me thinking about uh, what's really happening in the world and how things are changing. And I think technology is changing things. So there's a recurring theme in my book about. Uh, whether or not the talent agenda in business is really keeping up to date with how things are changing. Mm. So uh, a lot of what we've done in the past and a lot of best practice and the way that people think about talent has been about uh, the reality of an organisation that is intact, where people come to work and they're there during the day and then they go away again. And the reality now 
is that people aren't always on site. They work different hours. And a huge number of really key employees don't even work for you. They're not really employees, but there's a massive risk in them leaving. So how does the talent agenda reinvent itself? And I got really excited about that. So the whole notion of change. And so I don't have the answers to all of that, by the way. But it's just like, are the talent processes still fit for purpose? So, um, so it gave me an opportunity, really, to explore some of that. So those are the three reasons that I wrote the book. So I have – you said something interesting, and I have a, an original question, but I'm going to kind of add something onto that. So the, the original question is, it was this. Um, everybody has their own definition of talent, and, and so I'd like to, to help have you give us what your definition of talent is. And then to add on to that, you said something about um, somebody asking you a question, uh, can you create talent? And so that's mm. that's kind of the follow up to that is can you actually create it? So the first one is yeah. what is talent to you? Let's start there. Okay, so um so that's a really interesting question. Um for me, talent is all about managing risk in a business. And I do come at it from the perspective of uh the business because that's where talent predominantly happens. I mean talent but I'd say talent happens, ta- talent uh, talent management happens. So it's a way of ensuring that you've got the capability in your business to scale your business up and down. It's to safeguard your current market, break into new ones, but most importantly, do no harm to people while you're doing that. So I see lots of businesses changing shape and morphing into different things, and they bring people on, they hire them, they let them go, and you know, lots of people get damaged. Um, So the point you're making is a really important one. Uh, Can you make talent? I think you you can and you should. So there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about do we have the right capabilities to build our businesses? And what I see is a lot of businesses that are less successful going through this cycle of bringing people in, changing shape and letting people go. Where I see businesses being more successful is that they bring people in and then they change shape, but they don't let the people go. What they do is they redeploy them or they retrain them and they have an eye to the future. So they're not being caught out by business change. You know, any business that's being really well run and, you know, non-exec boards know this. That's why share prices go up when somebody's appointed at a senior level from within, that's the sign of a really well-run business because people are looking forward, are thinking about what's going to happen in their marketplace, not just what's going to happen in their business next week. And they're not reacting to those business pressures in a tactical short-term way, saving money and getting rid of a whole load of folk and then having to rehire a whole load of different folk who may actually be the same folk as they just let go, uh, which is a very short-term measure. So can you make talent? Yes, I think you can. Um, there's the old nurture-nature debate about leadership. Uh, my view is that there are certainly people who are naturally more inclined to leadership, but there is also, I think, I believe that you can 
make people better leaders. That's what I enjoy about coaching. One of the things that, that I, I guess I just thought of um, when, when you said that is it sounds like you're, when you're talking about talent, it sounds like it's better whenever you get somebody into your organization train them and allow them to progress. Is that, is that kind of what I'm hearing you say is that the best type of thing isn't necessarily to hire the next big hotshot executive, but if you can grow them from within, you're going to be that in that much better of a place. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I I think it's a balance. So there are lots of organizations. Um, Coca-Cola has a, a strategy of only hiring and promoting from within. So they have a phenomenal success record obviously of hiring people developing them and promoting internally and that's in in line with their values it's in line with their culture it's in in line with their strategic objectives what you do when you hire somebody and develop them through the business is that you've got a known quantity someone who's got a track record they already know the business they usually have a good reputation and network internally and it really invigorate other people in the business because they look at that and go oh yeah that promise of career progression within the business actually exists the downside of promoting internally is it can be hard to establish yourself in a different role so the armed forces in the uk will promote somebody and move them from base to base deliberately so that they don't have to be managing people who have previously been their peers And sometimes, I'm not talking about the armed forces here, but sometimes um, the track record that somebody has in a particular role or a particular area um, may be a good thing and help them to get promoted, but it may be not such a great thing. So it might be that other people regard them as still being at that lower level. So changing that view of themselves, that reputation that they hold can be more difficult when somebody's promoted internally. And and finally, they may not have the skills and experience that they get on the outside of a business looking in so that they will continue to do the things that have been successful in that business and perpetuate that in the long term. So there's a great example with Alan Mulally who joined Ford, and he was the first non-family member to be appointed to the board. The reason that uh, Henry Ford did that was to try and inject a different way of managing. So he brought with him all the skills and experiences, experience that he'd had at Boeing and used a lot of the insight and different way of managing in that new organization. So bringing in an external hire um, gives you external experience, fresh eyes. If they come from a competitor, depends actually on whether or not there's a a gap between them joining and and, uh, leaving the organization but they can bring in quite a lot of valuable information about what's going on from a different perspective if they're a competitor or a customer and they may bring in new contacts ways of doing things if they're a great hire they may also bring some people in from their old organization the downside of bringing them in is that it can take them time to induct and embed. It's also quite well known that because somebody's been successful and considered to be highly talented in one organisation, that does not necessarily translate to a new business. 
So you might hire somebody who's got a high potential rating in the business A, you move them to business B, and they're not quite so successful because they don't have the understanding of the culture. And sometimes you see that happening. Somebody is brought in with great promise and they sort of wither on the vine. They may also have not been completely honest at interview about how successful they've been. And it can lead, if you bring in external hires, it can lead to your own internal candidates getting demotivated and leaving. So inadvertently, you might lose some of the high potentials that you've got lower down in the organisation because they can see career paths are going to be blocked by external hires. So I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do this. I think it depends on, to a large extent, the culture that you're trying to create. But I think internal hiring is, is a, or internal promoting, I should say, is a great way to uh, to engage people. But I think you should go for balance. I don't think it should be completely one way or the other. So, Kate, I'm thinking of the person who's listening right now, and they're going, you know, that's great. You know, I, maybe I don't have enough money to hire someone externally, or I don't have someone who's able to hire, you know, maybe like the hotshot person that I wish I could hire. I'm just stuck with the people that I have, and I don't yeah. have very good people. Yeah, because I know that there's people who think that way of, you know, that, you know, the people that I currently have, they're not good enough. What what would you say to that person? Yeah, so, so that's a tricky question because, uh, you know, is it truth or is it perception? So sometimes people aren't able to perform because of the way they're being managed. Maybe they haven't been given the skills. Maybe they haven't been given the encouragement or the management that they need in order to be able to perform really well. Equally, it's true that they may just have been hiring not such great people into that business. And so you'd either need to look at uh, whether or not you're selecting the right people and making sure that you're optimizing that or whether uh, you're developing people in the right way. Uh, I think you have to stand back, though, and see what kind of assessment you're truly making, whether that's objective or whether the manager's just taken a view and saying, these guys aren't any good and the business is failing or not doing well because I haven't got the right people around me. That might be true. That might be true, but it might also not be true. <laughs> okay. So, you know, what, what would you say are some of the largest challenges that you see organizations facing whenever it comes to talent? Yeah. So it's uh, really, it's, it's quite interesting. I think for me, it's about the fact that you can't predict the future. So I was talking to, to a client yesterday and uh, she was saying, you know, what's, what's coming up? You know, what, what are the things that uh, I need to be thinking about from a talent perspective? And I said, well, what's the future for your business? And I think this constant change that's happening in so many different ways, is throwing up all sorts of challenges and issues. You've got new businesses that are arriving, uh, category killers uh, that are coming in from the internet being developed or uh, technology happening. You've got banks that are not banks anymore. You've got telecoms businesses that aren't telecoms businesses anymore. And I think that whole agenda, the way that business is changing and morphing and organizations are 
changing shape means that the talent agenda has to stick very closely to where the business is going. And the difficulty is a lot of businesses don't always know where they're going or, or have run out of road. And keeping the talent agenda right next to the strategic directors can be really hard. So one of the things that I talk about early on in the book is that actually if you're going to develop a business, you need to have an eye to how many people you need and what you need for the future. But if you don't know that, you know, and I get it, I absolutely get it. You know, you used to be able to, and in some businesses they still do, business planning and, and they kind of forecast out five years, 10 years. I've seen that reducing to three years, two years, six months. Well, how, how the hell do you build a business that is strategic and planful and get the right people in the right place at the right time if you don't actually know what you're going to be doing in six months' time? That makes it really, really difficult. So one of the things that, that I, I've kind of been following and watching is this this thing where um, we're seeing a much smaller talent pool in the workforce mm-hmm. for, for Gen X. And Gen X right now is kind of the, the 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 main group of people who are professionals right now. But there's these these two generations coming in afterwards, millennials and Gen Z people, and they're massive. They have tons of people to pull from. So the thing that I guess I'm interested in is how are companies navigating this? Um, where people who would it should at this time be becoming you know kind of the leaders and stuff of organizations, um, there's just not as many of them. So how how, how are companies navigating that? Yes, so what I'm seeing is that people are being pulled into senior roles at a more junior level. So uh, I was with an organization the other day where the average age of the managers in that room was 24. And, you know, we've got a guy who's 28 managing a team of 500 people. And, you know, they're great people. They're very bright. They're very able to do their jobs but they haven't necessarily got the experience that they need in order to know how to deal with certain things. So what I'm seeing is an increase in the number of mentors and coaches and external consultants who are supporting those people um, or who are actually being brought in as interims to do that job until there's somebody capable or able or ready to to take on that new hire. But you're right, I think I think there is. Uh, a really interesting thing going on at the moment. Um, and in a way, it's quite exciting because what you've got is a whole bunch of new leaders, young leaders who are they've, they've got no frame of reference about how things have been done before and they're not afraid to take chances and do things very differently and recreate uh, the way that they operate. And challenge the, the downside. Quite- yeah, and challenge the status quo, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that there are certain things in business that you can risk, and there are certain things that it's highly unlikely you would want to risk. So, you know, one of those is how you motivate people. And one of the things I talk about in the book is has motivation changed in along the ages? And it hasn't. You know, leadership is pretty much as it used to be. Uh, leading people hasn't changed that dramatically. But some of these young leaders 
don't necessarily know how to do some of that stuff. And it's not that they're not good people, they just haven't had that experience. So being able to, as I say, line them up with somebody who's got more experience means that they can try a, new, try a few new things, but also talk to somebody in advance or talk to somebody afterwards, review what they've done, review what they might do, make their own choices and decisions, but have someone there saying, if you do it this way, this might happen. If you do it that way, that might happen. And then they can make up their mind about what they're going to do. Kate, you mentioned, you know, that the motivation for people really hasn't changed that much. Mm -hmm. What what have you found? Uh, what are some of the things that do motivate people? Yeah, so there's, um, so I'm referring the book to, uh, to a great article with the uh, Harvard Business Review, What Do Millennials Really Want at Work? And the subtitle of that is the same thing as the rest of us do. <laughs> and I love that because for me, it, it's basically human nature and it's saying what do people want from work and, and it doesn't seem to have changed. So if you, if you kind of look at the piece of work by McLeod and Clark, where they look at engaging people, they go through a number of different things that help people to really understand you know, what the basis is of, of getting people to work. And they talk about things like strategic narrative. Do I know what I'm doing and why? Engaging managers. Does my manager help me to perform? Uh, they talk about employee voice. Do I have a say in what I'm trying to achieve? And integrity. Do I work with people who live the values? And I think, I think those four pillars, for me, are fundamentally what motivates people. What I've thrown in in my book is is well, how does that work for people who work for you but don't work for you? And some of those things are the same, but actually there's this growing tribe of nomadic workers. And that's calling leaders to really think very hard about doing things differently. And so, you know, if, if you look at anthropological research, oh, put my teeth back in, anthropological research, that, that kind of is throwing up some different ways in which people need to operate. So that strategic narrative gets translated into storytelling. Can you tell a story that's about your business that's going to be interesting and alluring for people who work for you directly, but also for the people who are key to the business but don't work for you? Uh, making decisions using elders, and by that I don't mean the oldest people in the business. Uh, I mean the people who are most knowledgeable. So, you know, how, how are rules followed? How are roles identified? Those kinds of things are really important in an unstructured business or a business where you've got lots of people outside of the business. So being really clear about how the business operates is, is going to be really important. What types of stories are people... Um, what, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, and, and the third piece of that is collaborating with others. So what I'm seeing and what, what I'm talking a lot about at the moment with, with uh, my clients is, you know, if you haven't got the resource within your business that don't work for you, what sort of collaborations are you putting in place with things like customers, um, suppliers, uh, perhaps even competitors to make sure that you've got the right skills 
within your business to deliver what you want to to deliver. Sorry, go ahead. What what types of stories are people looking for? You mentioned that um, you're wanting people. Um, you're, you're telling a story about your brand, and then so so there's that. What what mm. what are what types of stories are people looking for? And like, what does that what does that do for you as a brand or a company? Yeah, so so it's it's changed and it's not changed. The best brands know this. Um, so the, the the storytelling has to have something in it which makes people feel good about why they're there. And you know, when you're selling a car, whether you're making food, whether you're delivering coffee, there has to be a higher purpose to what you're doing. And it's really interesting that there's an, an awful lot of um, uh, CSR activity. So, um, so, so that's corporate social responsibility activity, where businesses are connecting in with charities and, you know, trying to find a way of establishing themselves as doing something for the common good. So you're seeing organisations like Innocent that had. Do you have Innocent in the US? Innocent are a brand in the UK anyway. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. that okay, well, they, they, they're, a, they're a soft drink manufacturer and they had a campaign where they had all their customers knitting tiny little hats for the bottles. So the hats were a kind of gimmick, but they were basically saying that they were going to donate some of that funding to, uh, to the elderly but what they were then doing was taking these little hats and um, giving them to hospitals for newborn babies. I mean, yeah, actually really tiny newborn babies, but, but that's kind of the sort of thing that they were doing. And I think you're seeing a lot of businesses look at, not looking specifically, but aligning themselves with a, with a greater good because more and more people are saying, what's important to me about finding a business that I want to work in and I want to stay in and I want to help develop is that actually there is a higher purpose. Now, the difficulty with that is that some of the technology businesses aren't necessarily improving people's lives. And in some of those cases, uh, it can be very difficult, even though it's an attractive thing to do, to work in a software business, developing code in order for people to be able to do something in their lives that's going to shorten time that they have to talk to people, for example. Uh, what's the social purpose behind doing that? And, and I think some businesses are struggling with that. I'm not explaining it very well, but I think that's, that's the social narrative that people are talking about there. How does, not just how does this business deliver its goals, but what does it actually deliver for society? Yeah. Who would be uh, maybe some global brands or some global organizations, you know, that our audience might be familiar with that you that you see they're telling really good stories and, you know, connecting what they're doing to a bigger purpose? Yeah, so you've got um, you've got some examples like, uh, you know, Google, where they're connecting people together. Uh, you've got where they're talking about uh, helping people to be mobile. Uh, so there are lots and lots of them. Those are the ones that spring to mind right at the moment. What, but there's an awful lot of big brands that are, that are doing that. What makes them in particular stand out, though? 
Like, how, like when they tell their stories, what makes their stories different than than other brands that might be major players that are telling stories too? What makes them really special? Like, I, I've seen all, a lot of the marketing stuff for Google and Ford, um, and and you're right, like it's clear, it's concise. But what what else is making it really stand out? Well, I guess it goes back to the to the Synec work around the why why people do things. Um, and I think if you can connect into, you know, I'm not just making a computer, I'm making something that will help you connect to other people in the world. You know, those, those sorts of, uh, those sort of value statements, those sort of mission statements, those sort of things that appeal to people in terms of having a connection or being able to be free to do whatever it is that they want to do, uh, I think is is really critical. But you're kind of pushing me now into talking about marketing of businesses, which is not my forte. Yeah. Oh sure, but it, it was just something that was interesting that was on my mind. But it actually, yeah, no, it's fine. It, it actually leads us kind of into this next question that I wanted to ask, um, which is about diversity. And so one of the things that you talk about in the book is the importance of diversity. Um, and and, and uh, can you talk to us about the importance and benefits of diversity within an organization, because these, these organizations that we just kind of mentioned were, they're very diverse in what they, what they do and how they do things. So when it comes to diversity within an organization, talk to us about that. Yes. Yeah, so by diversity, I'm not just talking about the traditional terms that apply here. So research has shown us that diversity of thinking can be a differentiator in business and can help to improve the bottom line. But it's a double-edged sword. So we also know that diversity can help to avoid groupthink when you've got people who think differently, they're going to see things from a different perspective. And that creates innovation. But it needs to be well practiced and managed because diversity um, of thinking also creates tension and conflict and infighting when it's not managed well. So what you need to do is have it facilitated, have ground rules and processes so that it's agreed up front how you avoid getting into entrenched views, to sabotage techniques or people becoming really kind of just ingrained in their own view. I think where it can be properly managed, um, it works really well. Where it, it's not properly managed, then I think you can create a divide in a business where you've got an us and an end thing going on. Uh, in the best places that I've seen it work, uh, it's part of an integral part of um, the values that there's tolerance and acceptance of difference. And that needs to be led from the board. The board needs to own it. They need to champion it. They need to have a vision and a plan. It needs to be factored into the strategy of the business so that there is an acceptance that it might take a little bit longer for us to deliver on a project, but the project will deliver a far superior output because it's got lots of things that are considered. Uh, and I talk about using Debono's six thinking hats as a great way to structure some of that. So I think, I think that's, that's really, really important. You know, Kate, you mentioned that one of the benefits of diversity is that it eliminates groupthink. Are there any other yeah. benefits that you see to diversity in your research? Um, so, so for me, the benefits are really around that innovation. It's around 
being able to see things that nobody else is going to see. So Christian Clayton's in, in his his book talks about uh, category killers. And there are lots of businesses that have gone out of business because they couldn't imagine anybody doing business completely differently from them. And so being able to think through what the unthinkable might be can come from diversity and allows you to move into areas that perhaps you'd never thought of, never, never even explored, or be aware of competitors who might be stealing a march on you. Because without that open view of how things work, that, that openness to understanding that you might not move into that marketplace, but somebody who you had never considered would move into that marketplace just did, and now they're breathing down your neck and might actually steal a march on you. Without that, you can go out of business. So it can help you improve your products. It can help you improve your customer service. It can help you improve productivity. It can help you improve the bottom line. But more importantly, it can help you stay in business. Mm-hmm. You know, diversity, you know, we talked about it a little bit. You know, it's it's not just differing opinions. It's, you know, backgrounds and perspectives as well. And so mm-hmm. how can organizations work to overcome those differences and create a more united front? Yeah. So. It's really tricky um, to do this. So, so it's, it's, it's really hard. And the reason it's really hard is that all of us have ingrained in us a, a view of the world that has been shaped by our experience, our environment, uh, and, and that adds up to something called unconscious bias. So. If you meet somebody who doesn't think they're prejudiced, they're wrong. Everybody has a prejudice. Everybody has a view of how the world works. Uh, They may not be negatively prejudiced, but everybody is prejudiced because everybody believes that the way they do things, the way they operate, is the right way to do it. By default, that means anyone who does it differently from them does it wrong, and they need to try and persuade them to their way of thinking. So I think when you're talking about how can you create that and make sure that businesses have a united front, that's quite a hard thing to do, even in a small business, doesn't matter whether it's small or big, because we all have different backgrounds. The danger of having a too united front is that everybody steps in time to the same music, nothing is done differently, nothing gets regenerated and businesses go out of business. If it's too different, then you're right, you can have a business that looks fragmented, where there's infighting, where nothing gets done, customers are aware of the differences. So for me, the way in which a business creates that united front is to have a a vision of how they want difference to play through in the business and they come together. And that can be often articulated in value statements. So, you know, the the values that we uh, we don't just tolerate difference, we actually encourage difference, we we like difference, we enjoy and create difference, we uh, help one another to express difference. All of those sorts of values uh, can help a business to then go, well, that's that's okay it's okay to disagree 
but the value that we have also means that as a business, that's how we operate and that creates the unity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. You know, I'm just wondering, you, you know, have you seen anything in, organ, in some organizations, you know, besides, you know, obviously, you know, asking for, um, you know, differing opinions, have you seen any organizations put in any, any systems or practices to actively encourage um, like dissenting point of views or not even necessarily dissenting, but different point of views? Yeah, so um, so the Debono's Thick Thinking Hacks is a, is a fantastic tool that I've seen work in organisations where uh, one particular business I'm thinking of use meetings where they uh, will go through the project with a black hat or a red hat or a blue hat. And so everybody in that meeting will have this particular project presented to them and the audience is there to critique and criticise. The red hat uh, would be one in which there would be two project teams set up in a competitive way, and then they present back to a, to, to a board or, or whatever, and that board would look at what are the things that we can learn from project team A and project team B that can help us to inform the, the final project. So those structured techniques for allowing dissent to happen can be really, really helpful. And, you know, in this business, they also use white hats and yellow hats and green hats to look at innovation. So we're going to, you know, we're going to look at what the possibilities are with no boundaries attached to it. And they specifically use those terms, black hat, red hat, white hat, in order for everybody coming into that meeting to know what they've got to do on that day. And it's a hugely successful, very, very powerful kind of tool. And I'm sure there are many others, but that's the one I've seen that struck me as being the most profound. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to something that we had mentioned earlier in the interview. You know, you talked a lot about the mentoring process. And mm-hmm. can you give like some examples of, you know, what you've seen to be like what an effective mentoring process looks like? Because I'm just thinking of, you know, organizations or even a boss who's wanting you know, to establish this mentoring process, but they're not entirely sure what to do. Yeah, so so mentoring is very different from coaching. Um, so for me, mentoring is somebody who is more experienced than the person they are mentoring. Um, and what they're basically doing is passing on advice, guidance, Uh, You see it a lot, actually, here in scientific establishments where perhaps you've got somebody who's doing some chemistry work or physics work, and they'll talk to a mentor a bit like they would a supervisor. He would be asking them different questions and pushing and probing and kind of guiding them around how things might or might not work in business. uh, It works slightly differently. They might get the pushing and probing product prodding and probing but uh, they would also be getting input around the business environment connections thoughts ideas coaching somewhat different from that um, so I'm an executive coach and what I do is talk to somebody about you know what it is that they want to achieve and then through a guided facilitative conversation get them to understand and articulate what it is that they think their next step, next steps should be and 
the way that a coach would do that is through support and challenge. So here are some things that might help you. Here are some things that you might not have thought of. But they wouldn't necessarily be passing on the advice and guidance that a mentor would be passing on. What are you seeing right now that that organizations aren't paying attention to or understanding when it comes to talent? Um, I think it's I think it's two things. I think it's that thing that I talked about earlier, which is that business is changing and that there is a high risk that the key player that you need to have in your organization doesn't actually work for you. And they may work for themselves. They may not want to work for you. They may work for you and a number of different competitors. They may not want to be on a succession plan, which means that once their uh, project is, is finished, they may move on. And so how do you develop a talent pipeline for that individual? That kind of brings me on to the second one, which is... Uh, and, and again, this is this is more intuitive. I haven't got any facts around this, but I think that very frequently uh, talent overlooks what's under its nose. So the people within an organisation who have the skills, the right capabilities to to do a different job, uh, but they're pigeonholed in a way that. Uh, makes makes them sort of be seen in in a particular function and they're not given the opportunity to branch out the only place i've seen that done differently was a merchant bank and they recruited people on the basis of their values and their fit with the culture of the organization so this bank brought people in and they did an interview process which meant that they were looking at the behavioural characteristics of those individuals rather than their skills and knowledge, because their view was it was easier to teach the skills and knowledge than it was to make sure that the person fitted right. So they would bring somebody in, and then if that didn't work out for the individual, the bank took responsibility for that and said, this person is a good person. It's not that they are not capable of doing this job, it's that we haven't found the right job for them. So they would redeploy that person into a different function or a different location or a different level, but they would not get rid of that person because their view was that person fits our organisation. We just haven't been able to find the right fit for them yet. The great thing about that was, yeah, the share price is really high uh, because people tended to stay. The reason people tended to stay is because they didn't feel afraid that they were going to lose their job because they knew the bank would take responsibility for trying to find them the right place to be. And all of those sorts of things are really important for knowledge sharing, uh, engagement, and that goes through to customer service, goes through to the bottom line. Kate, why do you think organizations are quick to you know if if it doesn't work out for someone in one position in a position you know i think some organizations are just you know quick to quick to fire and just quick to let them go why do you think that is money <laughs> <laughs> it's you know it is money it's you know the businesses that do that are usually 
very fixated with the bottom line, not that interested in the people. And when things aren't working out, instead of uh, investing more time, they don't have to necessarily invest more money. They invest time in getting rid of that person and bringing in somebody else who's going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that happen over and over again. You cycle people through. They are not successful. They remove them. They put somebody else in. They're not successful either. And in the end, the business ends up spending a huge amount of time, a huge amount of effort, a huge amount of money replacing people when actually the problem isn't the person, the problem is the culture. And it's all to do with money and short-termism. What have you seen, uh, you know, in organizations that, you know, they do keep the person and, you know, they, they work their best to find, um, find the right spot for them on the bus. What have you seen to be the benefit of organizations that choose to keep the person who's the right cultural fit until they find the right position for them? Share price. (laughs) The share price goes up. Uh, People are happy. Customer service is great. They hold on to the knowledge in the business. Um, They make, they're generally hugely successful businesses. So uh, I got in a taxi a few years ago with uh, the taxi driver, he was telling me all about how Shell retains its employees. Even when they're making, they're making them redundant, they go to the ends of the earth to try and redeploy people. And I don't know if that's the case still or not. But you know what? That, that taxi driver drove people all over the world, oh, sorry, not all over the world, all over the country, uh, with, with employees from Shell who couldn't speak highly enough of that business. What that meant was that... Uh, you know, people were really attracted to joining that business. They didn't have any problems recruiting people because it had a great reputation for the way that it dealt with people. It didn't have, presumably, it didn't have very high uh, costs around releasing people. It didn't have huge costs around hiring people because people were queuing to join them. And so I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case now, but at that time, it really struck me how much reputational uh, collateral you can gain from dealing with people the right way and how much damage you can do. You know, we all know in the UK, we know the businesses that you shouldn't join. They're the ones that we kind of call the revolving door. You know, they've got a poor reputation for the way they deal with people. They're spending a lot of money trying to attract and recruit people. Uh, they're losing people left, right and centre who join and then don't deliver and then they leave because they haven't been inducted or they haven't been trained. So all of this is is short term. And, uh, you know, the businesses that deal well with people and have a very strong reputation for that generally have great talent programmes. And I think, you know, there are there's a middle there's a middle piece in this, which is the small medium um, term enterprises that could go one way or the other and and that's what this book is trying to, to do and that's what I'm doing with my consultancy is trying to help those growing businesses that maybe haven't got quite enough money to have uh, a specific person looking after talent but that will pay dividends for them in the future because if they can get the right culture in place around how they deal with people then it will add to the bottom line you just see it over and over again Well, Kate, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We've really enjoyed uh, talking and learning from you. If people want to find the book, if they want to continue to learn from you, where's the best place for them to go? 
Okay, so the book's available on Amazon.com uh, or Amazon.co.uk. Um, and you can find out more about me and the way I work from www.talenttoolboxthetalenttoolbox.com. Thetalenttoolbox.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Okay, thanks. Okay, Todd, that conversation was just a little bit mind it was a dense. little bit mind blown there was a, there's a lot of stuff there this is an episode that you might need to listen to more than once but do what Caleb and I do if you do it on yeah so Todd what was there's there's a lot in this interview what was one or two things that stood out yeah. to you so um, first off I just wanted to talk about talent development um, so she talked a lot about where you can find talent how you can coach talent up all that kind of stuff but the one thing that I really wanted to stress, and Caleb and I have experienced this um, just in what we do, that uh, hiring from the outside might be the right move in some circumstances, but a lot of times the, the things that you need are, are actually um, can, can be found in your organization. You just have to understand how to coach, how to develop, and how to train people um, in, in the right way. And coaching and training and developing actually can go a long way and you might not actually have to go out and hire somebody from outside of your organization. The second thing that I wanted to touch on was was this idea of, of I don't even think she mentioned this in the episode, but it's something that I was thinking of as I was uh, as, as we were doing it, is the role that supervisors play in this. If you are an owner of a company or if you are the big boss over the whole company, your managers, the people who are directly over the frontline players, are one of your key assets in your organization. And, they're the, and the reason they are is because of this. You need those people, their, their primary job, sure they're signing papers, sure they're, they're making sure that quality control is up, sure they're doing all that. Their real primary job is just people development. That literally is what it is. Like in our context, Caleb, we have campus pastors, campus pastors that are over churches at campus or there's a, a family life director or somebody who, who's who's kind of over our department those those people um for us play this role of of really their, the job is just people development and and just the elevation of that so if you if you are in charge of a company or if you're in a position where you're one of these people man your job people development people development and, and, and working with people to put together an individualized plan for how they're going to grow and where they're going to go. I just think that that's, that was something that came out of this, this thing for me. So. Yeah, that was really good. And if that was something that you learned about or if you learned about something else in this podcast, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter at Learners Podcast or on Instagram at The Learners Corner. Or you can leave a rating and write a, the, write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. is yep. the best way for you to show your appreciation for the show. If you have learned something, if this podcast has helped you in any way, leave us a rating, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. Go do it. Now, this was a good episode. We have another good episode. Very similar. We kind of have a theme for this week. Because next, did we, kinda, did, we, did, we, did we plan that? On the next episode, we are talking with William Vanderblumen, and this is going to be a great episode. We talk with him about company culture and building that. We also talk with him about tips and things to do and not to do whenever it comes to interviewing, or both interviewing and being interviewed as well. 
so you don't want to miss that episode. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to this podcast on whatever podcast player you use. Hit that button. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Again, if this podcast has helped you in any way, leave us a rating, write a review of the podcast on iTunes to check through anything that we talked about. Look in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.